0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Getting to the Heart of Personalized ADT for Advanced Prostate Cancer. Are you able to leverage new data and therapy options to maximize cardiovascular safety and treatment-related outcomes? Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerviewcom forward slash ZYP 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Find out how much you know about optimal management of cardiovascular risk factors in prostate cancer patients through a simple three-step process in this self-assessment activity comprising five question modules. First, answer the baseline question to evaluate your knowledge and skills. Next, review the supporting evidence shared by Dr. Daniel J. George. Finally, answer the question again to demonstrate what you've learned. Each correct answer automatically counts toward post-test completion which means that getting your CME credit is fast and easy. We need to recognize that
1: ADT is really the standard of care for our patients with advanced prostate cancer, and it has been for the last almost 80 years now. Retrospective cohort analysis of over 26,000 patients with metastatic prostate cancer treated in the United States shows that cardiovascular disease was the most common non-cancer cause of death. So recognizing that there is this sort of competing causes in our patient population because they're older men, because they have comorbidities and cardiovascular disease is such a prevalent cause of death in our general population, it's also a significant cause of death even in our prostate cancer patients. And using the Framingham Risk Scores, a prospective study of over 2,400 patients showed that patients with prostate cancer were about two-thirds of which were at high risk for cardiovascular disease, which really says that this is a population where cardiovascular disease is really endemic to their risk. And thinking about that, our patients are more likely than not to have these risk factors, and that's going to be complicated as we treat them longer and longer. Because patients now are living longer than ever with advanced prostate cancer, this cardiovascular risk is accumulating over time and is probably being exacerbated by the treatments that we're giving them. And multiple population-based registries have shown that patients with localized prostate cancer demonstrate that about half of the patients had cardiovascular or cardiac risk factors. So even in this earlier setting where patients are first being diagnosed, maybe in their 50s or 60s, there's still a significant percentage of patients that have cardiovascular risk. And as we think about You know, the goals of the treatments in those circumstances, trying to cure them of prostate cancer, the risk of them dying of cardiovascular disease 10, 20 years from now may be actually higher than the risk of dying of prostate cancer. And that's got to factor into our treatment decisions and how we manage them. So, for many patients with prostate cancer, these coexisting cardiovascular disease risk factors, they've got to be part of our treatment algorithm and our risk tolerance to the therapies that we recommend and choose for patients. And we think about, well, what are those cardiovascular risk factors and comorbid conditions that are really complicating and competing with our prostate cancer management? They can really be broken down into a couple of different categories and they all really increase with age. So as we're dealing with patients maybe in their 40s or 50s, we're kind of looking at these factors as being maybe less of a cumulative risk than in patients that now are being diagnosed in their say their 60s or 70s or even 80s and how we're going to manage them. And the most complicating, the most the most common risk factors are things like hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, which we'll talk a little bit more about, and kidney disease. And some of these comorbid conditions that we're dealing with are things like atherosclerosis, ischemic heart disease, heart failure, stroke, coronary heart disease, arrhythmias, atrial fibrillation, cardiomyopathy, and valve disorders. And, you know, these conditions are kind of interrelated. The first group is really more kind of metabolic, systemic. The others are really kind of focused on the cardiovascular system in particular. So let's talk now about the goals of androgen deprivation therapy in prostate cancer. Androgen deprivation therapy has been a mainstay in this field for 80 years and historically was administered through surgical castration. But for probably the last 30, 40 years now, we've been using drugs to block this pathway, specifically blocking the endocrine signals from the brain to the testes to release testosterone. And the main way we did that, the original way, was done with these agonists called gonadotropin-releasing hormone, or GNRH agonists. And they basically mimic the signal from the hypothalamus to the pituitary, which initially causes a surge in FSH and LH hormones from the pituitary that then activates the testes to release testosterone. And that testosterone then is then maintained in a sort of a homeostatic balance. And it does so by feeding back on the hypothalamus to regulate that GnRH release. When we use the agonist, we have a continuous GnRH release, and that creates a desensitization. So after about two to four weeks, the pituitary no longer responds to this GnRH signal, and the FSH and LH levels drop. And that's how our agonist therapies work. Our antagonist therapies work by more directly blocking the GnRH release from the hypothalamus. And by blocking that, then we have a more direct, immediate decline in FSH and LH. And so we have a more immediate suppression of testosterone. There's no reliance on this negative feedback loop. And that gives us an opportunity both to more quickly drop testosterone and more reliably and quickly recover testosterone when we stop the drugs. And these two have become really the mainstay of how we administer hormonal therapy now, our ancient deprivation therapy in prostate cancer. But as I alluded to, you know, there are risk benefits to these approaches. And unfortunately, the engine deprivation therapy strategy and testosterone suppression has widespread effects. Testosterone is a hormone that works not just on the prostate and prostate cancer cells, but it also has far-reaching effects across our body. It has metabolic effects that affect our muscles and muscle loss, decreasing some nitric oxide production on endothelial cells and causing effects on our vasculature. It affects Cholesterol levels and can cause an increase in LDL and a decrease in HDL levels. We could see, you know, effects that are pro inflammatory and cytokine releasing. We could see, you know, effects on triglyceride synthesis and fat metabolism and metabolism in general with a decrease in the inhibition of differentiation into adipocytes, so more adipocyte tissue and more fat gain. And these sort of metabolic effects that are happening at the liver, the muscle mass, the body fat mass, and other tissue masses, you know, have a slow but cumulative effect in the body. They ultimately can result in decreases in our vasculature and both stiffness and tightening of our vasculature, as well as a formation of clots at a microscopic level that can really affect our blood flow throughout our system. And these have profound effects on a number of tissues and can result in this sort of central adipaticity that we see, this dyslipidemia, glucose intolerance, and increased risk of insulin insensitivity and risk of diabetes, sarcopenia and muscle loss, diminished exercise tolerance, and even ultimately our cardiovascular disease risk and risk for major adverse cardiovascular events like heart attack, stroke, and even sudden death. And so we think about sort of these androgen deprivation mechanisms on the cardiovascular health, you know, they're fairly widespread and they're driven through this axis, as I mentioned, this drop in testosterone. There may also be consequences to how we drop that testosterone. As I mentioned earlier, our GnRH agonists result in an initial surge of FSH and LH hormones, which then stimulate the testes to make testosterone. But these hormones also affect other tissues in our bodies, including our vasculature and adipocytes and other tissues. And whether that be from that arterial stiffness what we spoke about to the inflammatory cytokine effects at a local level within vascularity, you know, these can be tipping points for patients that already have pre-existing risk of their cardiovascular disease consequences, maybe in some cases, unknown risks. And these changes in FSH and LH, even transient for weeks to months, can have, you know, effects that can disrupt some of the balance of atherosclerotic plaque and myocardial cells and vascular tissues. Proportion of men that are exposed to androgen deprivation therapy increases with age. As I mentioned, the younger men in their 40s and 50s were diagnosing their cancers earlier. They may be amenable to surgery or active surveillance. They don't necessarily receive androgen deprivation therapy. But as we get men in their 70s and 80s, we're screening less in that population. Men are presenting with more advanced disease, more aggressive disease, and our management options become a little bit less curative. And androgen deprivation therapy is actually increasing. We can see the percentage of patients. You know, receiving antigen deprivation therapy increases with each, every five year increments of age over time. And that really has led us to this point in time. And if you go back over our last, you know, 10 or 15 years, the recommendations from the American Heart Association, American Cancer Society, AUA, have really recommended for routine cardiovascular risk assessment in our prostate cancer patients with blood pressure, lipids, blood glucose evaluations. But when we look at a series of veterans and through the VA for 2010 to 2017, more than 30% of those initiating androgen deprivation therapy did not receive this kind of comprehensive and relatively easy cardiovascular assessment. And even when we look at our most recent NCCN guidelines, these recommendations are only getting more consistent more comprehensive, and I think more urgent in terms of this, and yet the uptake in our practice is still suboptimal. And I think this is clearly an area for improvement. So the mechanism of action for LHRH agonists and GNRH antagonists differ. And these differences, although they both result in suppression of testosterone, do result in different Approaches and different consequences to these approaches. So let's just review for a minute the mechanism for each of these. For GNRH agonist therapies, which have been around longer and really since the 1980s, they focus primarily on a negative feedback loop by mimicking the pulsatile release of the GNRH from the hypothalamus to the pituitary. When we administer an LHRH agonist, then what we're essentially doing is we're stimulating more consistently release of FSH and LH from the anterior pituitary, which then activates as a hormone, circulates the body and activates the testes to release testosterone. That then feeds back that testosterone level and that serum level will feed back to the hypothalamus and without the agonist present will result in a decrease in that GNRH. But by having that LHRH agonist present in the presence of that testosterone, then the anterior pituitary becomes desensitized to that presence of LH or and results in a suppression of the release of FSH and LH. And that typically takes about two to four weeks. And so you get this initial surge of testosterone and then a subsequent drop in testosterone as those FSH LH levels are chronically suppressed. Now that's very different than the way GnRH antagonists work. GnRH antagonists work by blocking the signal from the hypothalamus for the release of the GnRH. And by blocking that signal, we get an immediate decline in FSH and LH within days. And that results in an immediate suppression of serum testosterone level, again, within days. So there's no testosterone surge. There's no you know, dependency on this negative feedback loop. There's no desensitization to this pathway. And so whenever we decide to stop that GnRH antagonist therapy, GnRH itself is going to start to be re-released again from the hypothalamus. And when that happens, we're going to get a recovery of that FSH and LH. And the testes, may take a little bit of time to grow back the cells that will release testosterone, but when they do, testosterone levels will return. And so we get a little bit more consistent in earlier recovery of testosterone. So these mechanisms differ in how they regulate testosterone. They may also differ in, obviously, the FSH and LH levels over time, and we can talk a little bit about the mechanisms of those as well. So if we look, there are now two forms of GnRH antagonists on the market. Degarelix was first, and it's an injectable form. It's an antagonist that binds competitively and reversibly to the GnRH receptor. And it's got a moderate half-life as a subcutaneous injection in a hydrogel depot that has a half-life of about 43 days. So it's given, administered once every 28 days to create a nice steady state. And it reduces testosterone levels by 80% within one day. Now, if we look Reagolex is the other formulation, it's newer in the market, it's an oral formulation, and it also is a GnRH receptor competitive antagonist. It's a daily oral medication with a loading dose, 360 milligrams day one and then 120 milligrams daily, and it achieves castration levels of testosterone within 24 hours of the loading dose, so it too has a rapid onset. Now, there's potential cardiovascular risk reduction associated with GnRH antagonists in some meta-analyses. These are retrospective analyses done primarily with degarelics. Since that was on the market sooner, we can see that there's a relative reduction in that cardiovascular risk rate by about 50%. When we look in these meta-analyses from six phase 3 studies, over 2,000 men with prostate cancer comparing the efficacy of these GnRH antagonists to GnRH agonist therapy. It's this kind of, you know, retrospective meta-analysis data that really led to the first real randomized trial to look at these therapies head to head from a cardiovascular perspective. And that was the pronounced trial. And this was a planned large randomized study of over 700 patients to receive either luprolide uh, GnRH agonists or degorelix, GnRH antagonists. And these were specifically selected patients with cardiovascular risk, with increased cardiovascular risk. And unfortunately, this study did not accrue well. It took a lot longer to accrue, and it did not reach its accrual goals. So we're left with a little under 400 patients total in this population. And their primary endpoint was to look for these MACE events, these major adverse cardiovascular events, stroke, heart attack, or sudden death. In some patients, these occurred early. In other patients, they occurred six months to a year out from treatment. They did a real adjudication of these events. A separate cardiovascular committee of cardiologists reviewing all the records determined the cause of these events and the relationship between the hormonal therapy and these events. And in the end, they did not see a difference in MACE events at one year between patients assigned to either degorelix or luprolide. So the study was terminated early. Now, the other prospective study we have is the HERO study. This was the pivotal trial to study the effects of luprolide versus Religolex on cumulative testosterone, continuous testosterone suppression over a one-year period of time. And that was a non-inferiority study evaluating a two-to-one randomization, Religolex to luprolide, and looking at that testosterone suppression. And it was a positive study. Religolex was superior to luprolide at suppressing testosterone continuously over that one-year period of time. But as a exploratory endpoint, they also evaluated cardiovascular events, particularly these MACE events, major adverse cardiovascular events, cumulatively over a 48-week period, and were able to demonstrate about a two-fold increase in these MACE events in patients receiving luprolide versus Religolacs. Again, randomized study. These were all comers of advanced prostate cancer, many of which, but not all, had cardiovascular risk. And we saw the cumulative incidence in Raleigh-Golex, Two point eight percent of patients had a major adverse cardiovascular event. Five point six percent of luprolide patients had one. And so when we think about these two GnRH antagonists and the similarities and the differences, they're similar in their rapid testosterone suppression. They're similar in their mechanism of blocking the GnRH release. They're similar in their ability to maintain that suppression. The pros for degarelix is that it's a monthly injection that can be viewed as a pro. They can come in, get that injection. There's not necessarily a copay associated with that, so there may be some cost utility. The cons is that, you know, They have to get a monthly injection. There can be injection site reactions. They can be painful. They can limit, you know, their access because they have to physically come to get those injections in many cases and it can result in a longer time to testosterone recovery because there is a depot effect. Its half-life is 43 days. Roy is an oral formulation. Many people see that as a pro. It has, again, this rapid testosterone recovery because of the oral formulation. It's going to have a shorter half-life. It's going to more quickly leave the system and allow for that more... Rapid and consistent recovery. And we see this 50% reduction in MACE events at this large randomized prospective study. The cons is that it's an oral medication. There may be difficulty and co-pays for patients. There may be adherence challenges for patients taking a pill every day. And, you know, these are patients that are really up. It's their responsibility to take the medicine. We're not administering it. So there are pros and cons to each of these approaches. And I think it's great to have options for our patients, but it's important to recognize the differences in these options. So let's start first with a quick review for those who are familiar with these drugs of the differences between a injectable versus oral ADT options. And so when we think about our LHRH receptor agonist therapies that are injected in depot forms anywhere from once a month to once every six months, these are therapies that will mimic the GNRH hormone coming out of the hypothalamus, stimulating the anterior pituitary and causing a rise in FSH and LH. And when we administer these exogenous LHRH agonists, we get a surge in FSH and LH. That results in a surge of testosterone. And that testosterone surge lasts for a couple of weeks. But in the presence of that surge, there's a negative feedback loop back to the hypothalamus, which results in a suppression of the GnRH hormone, which is typically Released from the hypothalamus, kind of pulsatile, and by giving this continuous LHRH agonist, the anterior pituitary becomes desensitized now to that level of LHRH agonist therapy. And as long as that level's there, we're not getting any more GnRH release from the hypothalamus, even as testosterone levels drop. So after about two to four weeks, the FSH, LH levels drop, pituitary becomes desensitized, the levels drop, and the testes stop making testosterone and the testosterone levels drop. And as long as that LHRH agonist is present, we maintain that suppression of this pathway. Now, that's different from our oral GnRH antagonists, which more directly block the GnRH receptor. And by doing so, we're essentially blocking the function of GnRH on the anterior pituitary and blocking the release of FSH and LH. So those levels are no longer surging. They're never leaving the interpituitary, the testosterone from the testes is not surging, it's dropping instead. Even within you know one day of that loading dose, we're getting a decline in testosterone levels to castrate levels, and that's having a more direct immediate effect on the prostate gland and prostate cancer. So it's those two mechanisms that were studied in the HERO phase three study. And this was really a study to meet multiple regulatory agencies' you know, demands. So in the United States, we needed to show that religolex reliably and consistently suppressed testosterone with very tight confidence intervals around that. And so the study had 624 patients receiving rale for other regulatory agencies, they wanted a non inferiority study to show that Religolex was equal to Luprolide at this continuous suppression of testosterone. So we had enough patients for our confidence intervals for Religolex, and Luprolide was given to 310 patients. So two to one randomization, men with advanced prostate cancer, 934 patients. The primary endpoint was that suppression of testosterone in the Religolex arm. The secondary endpoints was this non inferiority comparison, as well as some factors here looking at short-term castration levels and testosterone suppression. The inclusion criteria were really three populations. They were patients that had biochemical or clinical relapse after local therapy, they had metastatic disease, or they had advanced localized therapy that was deemed to be unlikely to be cured with local treatment. So men getting hormonal therapy maybe with radiation therapy. It was required to have at least one year of ADT. They had a baseline serum testosterone of 150, a baseline PSA of at least two, and a good performance status. And they excluded patients that had, you know, surgery or chemotherapy or were expected or had already started on ADT. They excluded patients that had prior ADT for more than 18 months or had not recovered their testosterone or had systemic chemotherapy for prostate cancer, no active liver disease. And anybody that had a very high risk cardiovascular, they had a heart attack or stroke. Within the past six months, they had an active arrhythmia or really uncontrolled hypertension. They were deemed to be too high risk for the study. This international study really focused on this broad population. And the top level results revealed that Roly-Golex suppressed and sustained castrate levels of testosterone in 96.7% of men. They needed to show a bar of 90%. It was 96% with very tight confidence intervals. So more than met the benchmark set by the FDA. And then... In the non-inferiority comparison, they were able to show actual non-inferiority, actual superiority over luprolide. Luprolide demonstrated an 88.8% sustained castrate level of testosterone, and they excluded that first window where we got a surge, so excluding those patients. The luprolide still was less effective at continuously suppressing testosterone. It was about a 7.9 percentage points difference in favor of early golex, and again, the 95% confidence intervals did not. Across here, so it met the superiority threshold. A number of those key secondary endpoints, including the non inferiority suppression, which talked about the cumulative probability of testosterone suppression on day four, 56% in the Raleigh-Golex, zero with the Luperlite arm, the cumulative probability of testosterone suppression on day 15, 98% for Religolex, 12% for luprolite. Again, sort of speaking to that, you know, really kind of early and dramatic effect from. Religolex that you're not seeing with Luprolide. 80% PSA response on day 15 for religolex, only 20% for Luprolide. And then the cumulative likelihood of a profound testosterone suppression, less than 20 nanograms per deciliter on day 15 was 78% for religolex, only 1% for Luprolide. And then lastly, the FSH levels were different. We see about a three and a half fold increase in FSH levels of 5.95 at six months for Luprolide versus 1.8. 7.2 for Ray-Golic. So even with that testosterone suppression of luprolite kicking in, we're still seeing FSH levels higher in the luprolite group than in the Rheogolix group. As I mentioned, there was a flare associated with luprolide. We see that in that first week with testosterone levels increasing about 50% uh, in the luprolide group. No flare at all with relicolics. These levels drop immediately, and we see that suppression within that first week of administration. Those levels are more profound at day 15 and week three. Eventually, those testosterone levels in luprolide come down, and you can see by three to four months, these levels are overlapping. They're both you know, chronically suppressed, but it does take some time. There are some luprolide patients that require, you know, several months before we get those testosterone levels down as low as what we see with Rayagolix. And then within this HERO study, there was a substudy. study There's a substudy of roughly 200, 180 patients or so that were randomized three to one, three of the Rayagolix patients to one of the luprolide patients. To be followed in the HERO study, just like all other patients, but to also be tracked for their testosterone recovery at the end of the study. At the end of 48 weeks, the beginning of week 49, the end of treatment, there's no more luprolide administration. That three-month injection has stopped. And so that was the end of the three-month injection for luprolide. And then at that point in time, the Raleigh-Golex tablets were stopped. Patients were followed monthly for three months to track their testosterone recovery with 280 nanograms per deciliter being the goal to reach. And you can see that roughly 50%, a little bit more than 50% of the Religolex patients reached a recovery testosterone of 280 nanograms per deciliter. By 90 days, less than 10% of the Luprolide patients reached that at 90 days. So a fairly dramatic difference between these. You can see the mean testosterone recovery for Religolex right around 280. For Luprolide, it's right around 50. So most of the patients here are maintaining a castrate level out to 90 days after a year of lupralide treatment three months later. And most of the patients are recovering their testosterone in the Rallygolex arm. So really, I think demonstrating quite dramatically the difference in the testosterone recoveries between these two groups. And then finally, and maybe most importantly, was a lower risk of MACE events that were seen in the Raleigh-Golex arm versus the Luperlite arm. And again, this was not powered for this event. This was an exploratory evaluation to see if there were differences in the reported major adverse cardiovascular events. And in the Religolex arm, the fatal events were 1.1% versus 2.9% in Luprolide. The non-fatal events were also higher overall. The MACE events were 2.9% for Religolex and 6.2% for Luprolide. For patients that did not have a history of any prior MACE events, remember, anything within six months, they were excluded. But if they had a more remote history of heart attack or stroke, they were allowed in. 2.8% of those patients with no history in the Religolex arm had MACE events, 4.2% in the Luprolite arm. But if they did have a prior history of MACE event, even a remote history, it was slightly higher for Religolex, 3.6% incidence of a subsequent MACE event. It was much more pronounced in the Luprolide group, a 17.8%, over five-fold increase in the likelihood of a subsequent MACE event in the Luprolide group versus the Religolex group in these patients with a prior history. So really, I think, you know, hypothesis generating, but a significant signal here suggesting that there are differences in these risks associated with Religolex versus Luprolide in terms of MACE events. So, GnRH agonists and antagonists work differently. Agonists will work by stimulating a testosterone release initially that will have a negative feedback and then essentially will suppress testosterone after two to four weeks. Antagonist therapies will directly block the signal to the anterior pituitary, so result in an immediate drop in FSH and LH and testosterone. And it doesn't have any surge effects associated with an initial increase in testosterone or the prolonged FSH and LH levels that slowly drift down over time. The initial surge is not necessarily a clinical problem for all patients, but for some patients, particularly our patients that have some symptoms related to prostate cancer, whether it's localized or metastatic disease symptoms, that initial flare that can last for several weeks can be really problematic for patients. So something to avoid. And then there are also, you know, sort of the chronic effects of this testosterone suppression that become you know, more difficult to reverse with the long-term androgen suppression through FSH-LH, through LHRH agonist therapy. If we look at the side effects associated with GnRH antagonist therapy, it's similar across this class of drugs. So we have degorelix, which is an injectable, which was studied in the PRONOUNCE study. We have Hero, which was a non inferiority randomized study of Religolex versus luprolide The side effect ratios are pretty similar. When you look at serious adverse side effects, they're a little bit higher for luprolide versus Degarelix. Are they pretty similar between Luprolide and Degarelix? They're a little bit lower in the Hero study for Religolex versus luprolide but overall pretty similar. If you look at the breakdown of them, there's a little bit more proportional fatigue seen with Degarelix versus luprolide about 50% more fatigue is about you know a 10% greater fatigue with Religolex versus luprolide in the HERO study. If you look at hot flushes, pretty similar, a little bit lower with Degarelix versus luprolide a little bit higher with Religolex versus Loperlide, but overall, you know, fairly similar. And if you look at MACE events, these major adverse cardiovascular events, talking about just heart attack Stroke or sudden death. DegaRelix and luprolide were similar. DegaRelix maybe just a little bit higher than Luverlite in the HERO study. Religolex was about half the rate of MACE events versus luprolide And then injection site reactions much more common with DegaRelix than luprolide 60 percent versus 26%. Obviously, not a factor with Religolex as an oral drug. But what does this mean in terms of our patients? That whole picture of how we're choosing our engine deprivation therapy. And what are the factors that are influencing those choices? There are some cancer factors for sure. Are we using this in a curative setting in localized prostate cancer for a defined period of time? Are we treating it more indefinitely, whether it's continuous or intermittent in advanced prostate cancer patients? That will factor into the cumulative incidence of these risks of side effects like effects on the lipid metabolism and dyslipidemia effects on muscle mass and sarcopenia, effects on central adipaticity and increased body fat, insulin resistance. And these are effects that are, that are cumulative and with longer and longer exposures or repeated exposures become more and more of a problem for our patients. And they lead to other conditions like diabetes and ischemic heart disease, arrhythmias, sudden death, cardiovascular events, and heart failure. And so recognizing both the cancer use and setting for this hormonal therapy and the consequences short and long term on our patients is really critical. And then recognizing these patients, independent of their cancer, have other risk factors that could influence these events, including pre-existing cardiovascular risk factors that could be you know, further modulated in a negative way by our hormonal therapy. So some of the preexisting vascular issues and metabolic issues in our patients, their fitness and conditioning. Some of this is modifiable. Some of this we can better manage their blood pressure, their lipid control, their hemoglobin A1C and their diabetes or risk of diabetes. Some of this is things that patients can modify their diet, their exercise, their weight, their sleep, their compliance with medicines. There's a buy-in here that goes into our decision factors and how we're going to manage these patients with how much the patients are willing to take on, how much are they willing to accept, and how much are they willing to change in order to really minimize the risks associated with this added therapy now for the prostate cancer. And then the management of these conditions could benefit from other subspecialists, our cardiologists, endocrinologists, an exercise team, exercise physiologists, dietitians, you know, caregivers within the patient's, you know, family network. So these are all, to me, part of the team of people that can help us reinforce the behaviors, the compliance, the goals of therapy both in terms of effectiveness on the disease, but also minimizing these risks at the most effective level. When possible, that kind of multidisciplinary team approach is best. There's also the considerations of oral versus injectable. And patients will have, you know, different views on this. Some patients, you know, like to come in and get an injection. And once every six months with a LHRH agonist is maybe something they're used to. Not too many patients have been getting, you know, injectables every month, particularly with degorelix and the painful injection site reactions and the frequency, you know, has been a challenge on patients. Cardiovascular benefit now, we're seeing, you know, some, you know, data suggests now prospectively there could be differences between these agents, particularly religolex and luprolide. And we see this two-fold increase in MACE events with luprolide, even much more so in those with a prior history. So recognizing that in our patients is clearly a, something to consider in our choice of therapy. The rapid testosterone effect and suppression, particularly for our patients that are presenting with symptomatic prostate cancer, is important. Cost and insurance coverage is an issue. And thankfully, some of those things are getting better with our oral agent, ReliGolex, now on the market for several years. And then adherence making sure that, again, these are patients that are going to stay with the program. And adherence goes both for coming in for their regular visits for the injections or being reliable and taking their oral medications. And there's ways of monitoring this, monitoring testosterone levels if patients are having problems with compliance. This is a shared decision process. At the end of the day, we don't make these decisions in a vacuum. We discuss this with our patients. The lifestyle changes has got to be part of the care. The differences in these ADT formulations and understanding patient preference is important. How aggressive are we monitoring? How effective is this therapy? Are these PSA levels dropping? Proportionally? To the right amount, we know that patients whose testosterone PSA levels don't drop to less than four by seven months are at significantly higher risk for disease relapse and early death from castration resistance. In many situations now, we're combining these therapies with other drugs, other androgen receptor antagonists, in our advanced disease setting. So making sure that we're getting the maximum PSA effect in that setting is key, but also managing adverse events and their impact on quality of life for our patients is really important. Even side effects that aren't necessarily severe, but are chronic, like fatigue and hot flashes, can be difficult on patients, effects on on their memory and cognitive effects, effects on their strength and conditioning can be things that really affect their quality of life. And then whether or not we're doing this, you know, indefinitely or for a defined period of time, intermittently, or for just a one-time, you know, course, all of those things kind of factor into our decision on which androgen deprivation therapy we're going to use. When I think of my own patients, particularly my patients that I'm treating with locally advanced disease with radiation therapy, having a defined period of time, whether it's one year, year and a half, two years, but it's not indefinite. And being able to say, look, we want a therapy that we can stop reliably at the end of this is really important. Think of, you know, a couple of patients come to mind where, you know, we specifically went, you know, a little extra time to talk about Riley Golex and why that's attractive. Patients completely agreed and, you know, never looked back and really had a positive experience and more importantly a positive recovery experience and a positive quality of life experience on the back end whereas with our GnRH agonist therapies injectables you know it's more of an unknown on when and how they're going to recover their testosterone i think of you know patients that have been on injectables for a long time. And when Rayogolix came out, it came to me and asked, you know, what do you think about this new medication? I said, look, here are the advantages. This is what we could do. And remember, this was around the time of the pandemic. Patients were really trying to avoid, you know, the hospital and visits. And for many of the patients that I could monitor locally through telemedicine and not require them to come in, this was a huge advantage. And my patients that we switched to really Golex from Luprolide, you know, who are on indefinite ADT, have not looked back. And many of them will say, gee, gosh, you know, I never realized just, you know, how onerous it was to get these injections over and over again and how much they appreciate being free of that. You know, it just takes one bad injection experience from a patient, one injection that really causes a hematoma or hits a nerve or you know real soreness for them to say look i really wish i could avoid those in the future and when you think about these patients even if they're on every three month every six month injections but they're on it for 10 years these are a huge advantage for patients to avoid you know, having to get those injections 20, 30, 40 times over that time period. So for me, these are the kinds of things I talk to patients about initially or even patients that are on GnRH agonist therapy as to why they might consider switching to an oral agent like Religolex. Here's a perspective from one of our zero patients, Daryl, who agreed to be interviewed around the switch from lupralide to regolix. And just to summarize here, you know, he really picked up on the fact that really seamless transition couldn't really tell the difference between these. But just the ability to avoid that soreness associated with injections was really critical for him. It's a part of his ritual. It's like brushing his teeth. He takes his tablet. It's not been a difficulty for him. It's not had drug interactions with other drugs that he's taken. And it really does give a lot of freedom to our patients. Many of our patients are retired, they want to travel, and these give patients the flexibility to do that. So it's important to recognize right off the bat that our patients in general, across the board, are going to have a risk of cardiovascular events, even if they don't have cardiovascular risk factors. But if they do, that risk of events is going to increase, you know, significantly significantly not just you know at the start of their diagnosis but throughout their journey for prostate cancer as they age these risks don't go away they get more pronounced having patients who now have a cancer diagnosis gives us an opportunity to see these patients more frequently than they might be seen otherwise and to potentially modify and manage many of the factors that could Otherwise, if left unchecked, worsen that cardiovascular risk over time. So if we think about the things we can't modify, these are things like their age, their gender, their family history of cardiovascular disease, their ethnicity and their genetic risk, and their prior history of cardiovascular events. Those are all things that are either set in the past or hardwired into them that we're not gonna be able to modify. But then there's a whole host of things that we can modify, like blood pressure, like total cholesterol and HDL cholesterol, smoking, their blood sugar and their BMI and other markers of chronic inflammation and other effects on their body. So recognizing these as modifiable, these are the opportunities we have to really change their outcome over and above their prostate cancer treatment. And the way we do that is going to be with a lot of medications, but also with a lot of lifestyle. If we think about smoking in particular, probably the number one biggest influence you can have if the patient is a smoker is to get them to stop. It's got all kinds of effects on inflammation, on cardiovascular risk, on you know, organ function from pulmonary function to cardiac function. So smoking is a huge risk, not to mention other malignancy risks and other things that could really confound and complicate our care. Diet is a huge modifiable lifestyle factor. And diet is something that, you know, in this country, it's a challenge. We have, you know, tremendous, you know, access issues. Food deserts that many patients live in where they're just not accessible to good whole foods. Many patients are eating diets that are largely processed and prepared foods that aren't as healthy as our whole foods. And many patients lack the resources or the understanding on how to eat healthy being able to coach patients, to educate patients, to support patients, and that is key. Exercise is a huge one. And if you think about our population as they age, many patients give up on exercise or maybe never did it. And these are the critical decade, the 70s, the 80s, that they're going to pay the price for that poor exercise habits. But it's not too late. Even modest amounts of exercise make a significant difference in this age group and even patients that haven't exercised in the past. So there's no patient that doesn't benefit. And there's so many forms of exercise you can do despite the physical limitations patients may have. But it does require a lifestyle commitment. And then stress, stress reduction for patients is really important. Sleep hygiene, really important. Having patients maintain routine is so critical. And the way we do that is with this last section, social. You know, really helping patients with a network. Being plugged in, not exercising or eating alone, but being social in those approaches. Social deprivation of patients, one of the biggest hurdles in managing patients that are really isolated. Income's another huge hurdle for our patients. Many of them on fixed income really being impacted by the cost of care that's gone up because of a cancer diagnosis. So recognizing all of these factors going into the management and care of our patients it's critical. And why do I say that? Because we can't do this alone. If we manage our prostate cancer patients alone, we're not doing them a full service. We need a team. And that team includes our colleagues and other specialties like cardiovascular Cardio-oncology clinics are popping up all around. Major academic centers and even community centers beginning to recognize the benefits of patients with cancer seeing cardiology and the specific concerns that cardiology concerns for our cancer patients. Having an endocrinologist on your team that works with you for diabetes management, cholesterol management is really critical. Hypertension management with a cardiologist for sure can be really helpful. Sure, we can all put one blood pressure medicine on but what do you do when they're on three or four? This is really not in our realm and this is something where I think we can really benefit from having that team approach and recognizing there are, you know, increasingly comprehensive guidelines within cardiology and endocrine and other specialists to kind of help us in managing a lot of these things is really critical. What if you don't have that? What if you are alone? What if it's just your team with your nurse practitioner or your pharmacist or your nurses or nursing aides? Well, there's still a lot we can do. And this A, B, C, D, E algorithm is something that, you know, I think everybody can internalize and help patients to manage. So we think of A, awareness around these cardiovascular signs and symptoms. So patients know what to look for And taking a low-dose aspirin, blood pressure for B, and maintaining goals and keeping those goals as low as possible and having them monitoring that. C is for cholesterol and cigarettes if they smoke, but maintaining high-intensity statin therapy in order to really minimize that hyperlipidemia risk. Stopping smoking for those that do smoke, diabetes of frequent glucose. glucose monitoring, and metformin, if they have that sort of early diabetes as well. Diet, diet rich in fruits and vegetables and whole grains and other whole foods are really critical, avoiding many of these processed foods. And excess alcohol. I mean, again, you know, it doesn't mean no alcohol, but everything in moderation. And then exercise, really a minimum of 150 minutes per week. Think about that. You know, that's three 50-minute workouts. That's a lot of exercise. That's the goal. If we can do, you know, even... You know, some of that for our patients that have limited exercise capability, that's good. But for those who don't have limitations, pushing to those kind of goals is really critical. And then if we think about, you know, this impact on exercise, I can't stress this enough because, you know, this is really ultimately the path to frailty. Think about how many of our advanced prostate cancer patients are ultimately succumbing to death. It's because of frailty. And that frailty is as much to do with our treatments as our cancer. And it also has to do with their age. And so as these patients get into their 80s, it's so critical that they maintain their muscle mass. And as they get complications, whether it's from falls or infections, or cardiovascular events, these are setbacks. And they lose during those hospitalizations and rehabilitation periods, they lose that muscle mass more rapidly. So maintaining that muscle mass before those events happen, the years before those events happen, is so critical. Helping people have a long-term goal regarding this, it does two things. It sends the message that one, we think you're gonna live for a really long time. And our patients love that. When we, whether directly or implicitly, you know, send that message. And then I think the second thing is, it shows we care. We care about their lifestyle. We care about them as people. We're not just treating their disease. They're not just carriers of cancer. They're patients. They're patients we care about holistically. These are really important messages to help people understand. And yes, we can go through the benefits here in terms of body composition and muscle strength and bone density and well-being and markers and everything. But ultimately, what we're really looking for here is for patient buy-in, for them to really understand and internalize this. To me, one of the most impactful things I've stressed for patients is routine because that 150 minutes a week, can't do that as a binge once in a while. You know, that has to be a routine that they build in. 30 minutes a day, five days a week, or an hour, you know, three times a week. These are the kinds of things that patients need to recognize as part of their lifestyle commitment. And the reason that's important is with hormonal therapy, they lose motivation over time. Patients just lose the drive to keep doing these kind of things. But if they've set in a routine, if it's part of their practice, like getting up and brushing their teeth in the morning, or making their cereal, whatever it is that they do as a routine, if exercise is part of that routine and it's internalized, they're much less likely to give up on it as their motivations kind of wane with chronic hormonal therapy. And that ultimately comes down to the team again. And that team and recognizing that the patient is the center of that team. And yes, as oncologists and urologists, we're a key member of that team for the prostate cancer perspective, but so too are these other specialists, our pharmacists, our social workers, our nurses, and the caregivers, the people that surround that patient every single day, involving them, all of them, including the patient themselves as part of this team is so critical. We're social creatures, and if patients really feel that kind of investment, broadly in their health and they feel responsible ultimately back to the people who are investing in them they're much more likely to remain compliant with everything from taking their medicines to maintain their diet and exercise to the, you know, maintaining a positive outlook cancer is a marathon it's a long journey it's very difficult on these patients to maintain that throughout There are going to be setbacks we know that helping people to really see the big picture to be able to overcome those setbacks to maintain that outlook. It's going to require, you know, that whole group effort and being, you know, not isolated in that messaging, but collaborative is so key. So to me, whenever possible, I try to involve some of these people you know, in our conversations with patients, whether it means including the nurse or including the caregiver in the room with the patient or talking with them outside the room is a really important aspect of this. However you can do that, tumor boards with your other specialists and whatnot, there's a lot of different ways of creating this interaction. It doesn't necessarily have to be a physical one. It can be through, you know, multiple different you know Zooms or message boards or emails or golfing or wherever it is that we have an opportunity to interact with our colleagues around care of our patients. It's, it's always to the
0: benefit when we can do that. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerviewcom forward slash ZYP860. Funding for this independent medical education activity is provided from Pfizer Incorporated and MyAvance Sciences Limited.